One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. I was hoping, obviously, that we would be talking slash listening this morning in more more pleasing circumstances. A home game against West Ham gave us a chance to go top of the table last night. A chance we did not take, much like many of the chances that we did not take on the pitch as well. Arsenal with 30 shots and no goals. And when you couple that with some defensive, I don't know if you call them mistakes necessarily, but when you're not quite at the top of your game defensively, you're going to get punished in the Premier League. So there's plenty to unpack from this game. We're going to get straight into it. And with me to discuss Arsenal nil West Ham 2 from Football London, it's Kaya Kainak. Hi, Kaya. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm okay. Cold light of day stuff, you know. I think we were hoping to have a more uh, enjoyable conversation today than dealing with a home defeat and no goals scored from an Arsenal perspective. And I think that might well be the major talking point from this game because Arsenal dominated really with 30 shots on goal, uh, but no goals to show for it. West Ham had six shots, I think, in total, five or six, ended up with with two goals, which does show you the the vagaries of football um, and all the rest of it. But it will have been a very disappointing night for, for Mikel Arteta and the players because they missed a chance to go top of the table. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this this is my first sort of post-match cast I've been on, and it's, it's for a defeat. I'm hoping that that's not a, a jinx of sorts where every time you ask me on, Arsenal lose. But it does seem to be a bit of a bad omen. And yeah, it was one of those games, wasn't it, where you, you chalk it down as one of those days where nothing goes right. Um, I think from Mikel Arteta's side of things, he'll probably think, listen, I did everything I could. You, you talk about those stats there. I think there was a record number of touches in the box as well. All sorts of things that point to nine times out of ten, mm. the attacking team, the the team that takes the initiative, winning the game. And it wasn't like uh, when West Ham beat Man United in their in their previous match, and, and it was a bit of a sort of a, a stalemate until West Ham eventually broke through. This was this was very much against the run of play when West Ham did take the lead. Game state is obviously huge, and then from that point they've got something to defend and and all that stuff. So yeah, it was a very disappointing game for Arsenal. It's kind of one that I'm sure we'll get into this in a bit more detail in a second but it's, it's one that kind of feels like it's been coming though I don't think anyone was necessarily surprised that this game came um, but it doesn't make it any less disappointing No I, I presume you're sort of talking about the tendency I don't know if you would call it that but Arsenal haven't quite been as efficient as clinical uh, as we should have been in the final third and that includes some games that we won you think about the Brighton game uh, where Arsenal were, you know, on top, and and that game should not have been as tight as it was, but because the chances weren't put away, because the final pass wasn't quite right, 
Um, you know, it was a bit hairy for a little while until we did get that second goal and went on. And, and there were sort of shades of the games against Newcastle and maybe more the game against Villa, where I think Newcastle was more of a stalemate of a game and Arsenal lost out to a goal which um, resonates with the goal that we conceded last night. We'll we'll talk about that. But but Aston Villa, where Arsenal played well and um, did have chances and did make opportunities to score goals, but didn't score the goals and ended up losing the game. So there are going to be questions about the, the, the front three and what they've produced in the last little while and all the rest of it. But in terms of when you're saying this is one that's maybe been coming, it, it's it's that little obstacle that we're trying to get over at this moment in time. Yeah, this this title race from Arsenal is so different from last season in the sense that it's built on the defence. Arsenal have the second best defence in the Premier League, but I think it's the seventh best attack when it comes to goals scored. So that tells you quite a lot about how efficient the, the front three have been. You mentioned the Brighton game, Villa, Newcastle. This month alone, uh, Wolves is another one that sticks out in the memory where Arsenal really should have been three or four up and Wolves scored in the last 10 yeah. minutes and made for a nervy finish. Even at Anfield, if Arsenal had taken all their chances, um, they probably could have come away with a win in the cold light of day when you look at that game. Obviously, the washing machine of Anfield, as Arteta says, always feels a lot more hectic, but Arsenal probably on the balance of chances could and maybe should have come away with a victory there. I know Trent had his chance too, but even if you go back to the opening day of the season when Arsenal absolutely battered Nottingham Forest for a good 80 minutes and only went 2-0 up and Forest scored in the last 10 minutes and it suddenly becomes a very nervy finish to the game. And mm-hmm. there's been so many of those games this season where Arsenal's attack hasn't yielded the kind of rewards you'd expect. And, and somewhat perversely, the games where they have scored lots of goals, I think of Sheffield United where they won 5-0, they haven't necessarily been that effective in the attack. I guess that's just the way football goes. And when, when I say it has been coming, I kind of mean that this is a performance that has been in the pipeline because you can't keep wasting chances, especially if you want to win Premier League titles. You can't afford to Mm. to pass up the number of opportunities that Arsenal are passing up each game, pretty much. And yeah, I'm sure we'll get into individual forwards and and whether they need an upgrade, but I think it it speaks to a a systemic issue that Arsenal are struggling with and you compare it to, to other sides. It does look as though um, that's not an issue for them. And, and if Arsenal do end up losing this this Premier League title race, that might be the difference, which would be a real shame if it is what costs them. But I still think that it's, it's going to be a problem unless unless they can find a way to fix it. And I don't really see how there's going to be any external solutions to that. So Mikel Arteta is going to have to find something from within to, to solve this issue. Yeah, I mean, he was asked about it in the post-game press conference, which um, I'm sure you were at. And he was asked about January... And, you know, the potential of a new arrival to add something to the forward line. This is this is what he said. I'll just play this. We have is the player that we have is the player that that I love the most. And uh, what we have to do is try to to get better situations and more training and put them there, raise the confidence. And, and that's it, because they've done it. And, you know, he was then asked, you know, is it a confidence issue? And he sort of played that down. He's talking about fine margins and things like that. I mean, there are ways to play poorly, right? And one of those ways, I guess, is, you know, doing nothing in a game. And you wonder, like, how are you going to score a goal? How are you going to create a chance? I think we've been there and seen that in the past. 
if there's a good way to play poorly, I suppose if you're looking for a silver lining, the best way to play poorly is to make lots of chances but not take those chances and, and you're punished. And I'm not trying to excuse anything here, but that might be the best way of playing poorly. But it's still playing poorly when you have that many opportunities, when you have 30 attempts on goal and don't score. I mean, do you think that might get into the minds of the players themselves where you know they understand that... Um, you know, the, the performance levels have been basically pretty good until you get to that final third. But once you get there and you have this sort of the weight of this on you, it might affect the decision making that we're all looking to to be improved. Possibly. Uh, I think it's <clears throat> sorry, it's, it's, it's I understand the point you're making with with saying poorly, but I'm, I'm not convinced that Arsenal did play poorly last night. I think they were they were absolutely dominant for most of the game. They created more than enough chances to win. I know your argument that not taking those chances playing poorly, but yeah, I mean, I, I was you know I'm being slightly facetious with that, mm. you know, in the sense that um, you know does a striker have a good game if he has five or six chances and misses all those chances? On the one hand, it's good he's got the chances, but if he misses them all, it's not a good performance. So that's kind of the ballpark I'm putting that into. And I'm I am trying to say, look, it is more positive than negative to make those chances, but you know ultimately take any stats you want or, or all the rest you know when you when you don't put the ball in the back of the net in this league you more often than not get punished yeah otherwise known as the never-ending Gabriel Jesus debate um <laughs> I think I think last night was probably the most um symbiotic symptomatic sorry uh Gabriel Jesus game you can you can think of really where in the first half the chance he creates for Bukayo Saka where he scoops it over into the six-yard box and Saka forces a really good save mm. from Ariola with a header. I don't know if there's another number nine in the Premier League who would do that. Having said that, I know there are plenty of other number nines, <clears throat> excuse me, who would take the opportunities that he passes up in the second half. And and that is a real issue for Arsenal. And I don't think necessarily it's affecting Jesus' confidence because he's still, I think he's, he's on a really good run of form. I know he's not scoring many goals, but I thought he was good at Anfield. I thought he was really good against Brighton before where he did get a goal. And I thought he was great at Luton earlier this month. Um, I thought he was okay last night, but it was disappointing that he didn't take his chances. I think you're always going to have that issue with Jesus. And, and if you've not got anything beyond that, who are scoring the goals. And, and last season, Arsenal got away with it in the sense that Martin Erdegaard was chipping with 15 goals and, and Martinelli was scoring loads of goals and, and Saka was scoring lots of goals. And Eddie and Ketty was adding a few from the bench and, and Trossard was coming in and, and doing his bit. And right now that supporting cast of Jesus isn't quite doing what they have been. And Martinelli in particular is a player who looks really short of confidence. I think he seems to be someone who is still trying and still getting in all the right positions. But when it comes to, I guess, that um, that sort of um, killer instinct he's, he's tended to have in the final third, he looks like he's overthinking things now. He looks like he's a little bit soft to go into duels. He's almost apologetic sometimes when he goes into them. And I think that's a real issue for Arsenal because they're the kind of team with a striker who doesn't score... 30 or goals a season you need your wingers popping in with with 20 25 goals and and this season Arsenal haven't had that at all and I don't want to single it on Martinelli because like I say Saka maybe hasn't been as uh, efficient in the final third Erdegaard's been nowhere near what he was last season um, Trossard was quite poor last night obviously Kai Havertz has stepped up with a few goals and, and he was missing but the rest of the team has to bear that burden because it's not something that's impossible to win the league without a striker that scores 20, 25 goals a season. Manchester City did it for, for many years before they got Erling Haaland and they never really had a player who got above 15 regularly. 
So it can be done, but you need those players getting 15 goals. And, and right now, Arsenal are quite way off that. Yeah, the the, the focus will be on the wide men. Uh, it is quite interesting, the, the focus on Gabriel Martinelli. And it's a conversation that we've had, uh, you know, on the podcast, in our preview podcast. And, and there is something missing from his game. There's no two ways about that. Something is not quite right. Like there's been a... <sighs> a wire has been disconnected between his brain and his legs, which are, you you know, there's just somebody needs to get that back. But, but, but Kai Osaka, Martinelli has more goals recently than Bakayo Saka. Saka scored against Bournemouth on the fourth or, or uh, in the four 0 over Bournemouth on the 30th of September. He's got one premier league goal in 12 games since and Martinelli has two premier league uh, goals in that time, which, you know, is not really, uh, brilliant, but it's still uh, more than Bakayo Saka, and the conversation isn't happening about Saka. But but I suppose the overall uh, feeling would be like in Premier League terms, Saka has five goals and seven assists so far this season. Jesus three goals, one assist, and Martinelli two goals, two assists. He's had seventeen performances uh, appearances, rather. Jesus fourteen. Saka 18. Overall, Saka has eight goals and 12 appearances so far this season. So that's 20 goal contributions. Jesus 7 and 3, 10. Martinelli 4 and 3, 7. So, you know, the slack that you need, as you mentioned, when it comes to uh, scoring goals and, and taking those chances isn't being taken up. And it was quite evident last night, I think, at times where Saka. Uh, maybe not Jesus as much, but Martinelli, once they got to that final third, and it's I think we have to hold our hands up and say, one, it's difficult to play against uh, a West Ham team that is uh, sitting deep, well-organized, well-drilled, and with a one-goal lead. But, but those moments, particularly in the second half for Saka, weren't, weren't there. First half, you mentioned the header. I think that's a very good... Header. I don't know what more he can really do with that. You know, he's got two defenders there, gets it on target. Keeper makes a very good save. Then he hits the post, and you're talking the margin of a you know a couple of inches, and that's a goal at a, a very important time in the game. But in the second half, it was like the decision making isn't quite there. It's not uh, precise enough, and I wonder if, in some ways, what we're doing in the build-up is is being reflected in what we're doing in the final third, because there is, a, you know, a security to what we do in possession, but maybe not enough tempo with what we do in possession. And um, we'll talk about a couple of the others, you know, Trossard at left eight, but Zinchenko, you know, is playing the game at his own tempo rather than maybe the tempo at which the game uh, requires him to play. Yeah, I think Zinchenko's struggling for form is obviously another huge part of, of Arsenal's issues in the build-up. And listen, I think if 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 Timber or Tomiassi were fit, I don't think Zinchenko would be in the team right now. And he looks like a guy who could do with maybe a couple of games on the sideline. He's never really been, even in his time at Manchester City, plays every three days. And that's what he's having to be for Arsenal right now. And I wonder if that's catching up with him because... The decisions he's making, the the way he's playing, he looks a little bit tired. He looks a bit mentally frazzled, and and when he's at his best, he's so calm, he's so composed on the ball, and it's just we've not really seen that in in recent times. And obviously, there's the defensive side of things, and and the way the first goal goes in is partly his fault. And when that is happening and continuing to happen, and, and you're not getting 
the other side of it, the other side of the coin, the attacking part. Yeah, your question is is sort of is the juice worth the squeeze with Zinchenko? But I guess to, to pin it entirely at his door is harsh. And you mentioned Saka there, and I thought Saka did okay last night. I agree with you in the first half; he was much better than the second. And I've noticed that a lot. And he again strikes me as someone who could maybe do with a little bit on the a little you know rest. I don't know when that can come because or he's how. tiring. Yeah, or how, or how, because I fully expect him to start the FA Cup game against Liverpool. I expect him to start every single game and, until that point and, and Arsenal need to win games and uh, they need someone who is fully fresh on that side and he looks like he tires towards the end of games and Luton aside, which was right at the start of this month, which has been a hectic month in terms of fixtures, he has, you know, he's had to, I think he's tired in a lot of matches and yeah, um, I think he's another one who's struggling from being crowded out by defences and, and West Ham were, were excellent. But to be honest, this was a very similar game to last season's game against West Ham where West Ham took the lead against the run of play. It was a Bowen penalty last time. It was a controversial goal this time. And that day, Bukayo Saka, I think oh, Martin Odegaard mishit a shot that went into Bukayo Saka's path and Arsenal scored and, and then the game state completely flipped. And sometimes you get that stroke of luck and, and sometimes you don't. And I'm a little wary of, of going too deep into this game as like a... Um, a real point of concern for Arsenal because I think, you know, they've got themselves to a point where they're, they're second in the league and every team has these kind of days. Manchester City have them, Liverpool have them. This will happen across the course of the season. I guess, like we say, the frustrating thing is we could all see this one coming, but I, I just, I, I'm looking at this and I don't, I don't quite know what the solutions are. It's, it's frustrating because normally you look at a footballing problem and you can, you can see a solution, whereas possibly the most maddening thing is there's not many internal solutions that Arsenal come up with can come up with sorry mm. to solve this and you look to the market is there anything out there possibly but I don't know if Arsenal have the money to do that in January and I don't know which player would would necessarily change this right now I mean that is the $64,000 question isn't it that you know I think last night's game made it very clear that the the need for an addition in the forward line, whether it's a striker or whether it's a winger of some description, is is absolutely there. But it's difficult in January. We know that there are monetary concerns as well with FFP and you know availability of players in January is another issue. You know, you're 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 struggling to not maybe find the solution, but uh, being able to execute the solution or implement the solution rather in January. So it is a question then of, of what you do and, and what you can get out of what you already have, which is what Mikel Arteta talked about in the press conference, that he has to get more out of the players that he knows can, can score goals. Um, I mean, can we talk about Trossard at left eight? Because I know Kai Havertz was missing. But we also had Emile Smithrow, and I sort of, I was really hoping that Smithrow would start this game because I think it was a chance to give him a run out and to see what he can do in that position. And with Havertz missing, you know, he, he seems like a relatively natural fit in there. Whereas Trossard, for me, I don't like him in that position. I like what he's done since he's joined the club. I think he's been effective. He's contributed. He gives you a good option off the bench. There are certain games where you can start him, whether it's wide or whether it's up top. You know, I like the player. I just don't like him in that position. I don't know that it suits him. I think last night was a good example of that. His set pieces have frustrated me over the last couple of weeks. And 
you know, I think it was clear what Arsenal were trying to do with the corners last night was was get them to the near post, flick them on, and there's a small area where those corners can become effective, you know, uh, because of where you're trying to put it. But it was frustrating to see those corners cleared at the, the near post and there was a free kick that he made a complete balls of. If, if Arteta is looking for an internal solution of some kind, is Smith Rowe a player who he knows can score goals? Goals maybe that, that saved Mikel Arteta back in the day. Is he not somebody who, if he wasn't going to start last night, could have been introduced a little bit earlier when it was quite clear that Trossard was not at the races? I know he had a late chance, but that was um, it was a good touch, by the way, and, and uh, the, the keeper made a save. But great work from, from Martin Odegaard. But, like, if you are short on options, is it not incumbent on you as a manager to sort of look and say, well, how can I try and uh, change things? And how can I get the best out of players who are capable of producing? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's a bit of a butterfly effect last night where I think if Kai Havertz had been available, we would have seen Trossard on the left wing because if you look at that sort of Houdini-like escape artist ability he's got in tight spaces, he's probably one of the best in this team. And when West Ham are defending as a low block as they were, you need players like that in the final third. And I agree with you. I, I like Trossard. I think he's a fantastic member of the Arsenal squad. But in that slightly deeper role, I don't think it suits him. And what Havertz does so well and, and where he probably could have made a big difference last night is you know, giving Arsenal the option of going over the top of the press. And Trossard, for all his abilities, is not going to win any aerial duels. So... You know, I think that was an issue for Arsenal last night. I think if you'd had him on the left wing, he probably would have been a lot better and up against the fullback and being able to drift into the box and, and all that kind of stuff. It, it would have been a lot better. With with Smith Rowe, I think Arsenal are really wary of, of rushing him back in terms of fitness. So obviously he's just come back from his, his knee injury and I know he's been back since, since PSV, but Arsenal are wary of sort of putting too much on him too quickly and, and starting a Premier League game. I don't know how long he would have had in the tank. I don't know if he would have had a, an hour or if he would have had certainly probably not 90 minutes. So maybe that explains that decision. But I, I'm, I'm with you. I would, I would have loved to have seen Smith throw starting that game because I think it was the kind of game, again, where you look at those maybe small spaces players, the ones who can beat a man and, and drink past the player. And I thought of the subs, he was probably the most uh, effective of the three who came on. I thought Reese did okay and I thought Eddie did fine, but I thought Smith Rowe looked like the most likely to to make an impact. And you always, sort of with hindsight, question, oh, what if he'd been brought on a little bit earlier? Maybe he could have done a bit more. Mm. I think if this game had come a couple of weeks later and Smith Rowe had a few more training sessions under his belt and maybe that FA Cup game against Liverpool under his belt, I think he would have started. And I think that Sheffield United game earlier in the season where Smith Rowe was thrown in in the Premier League, that proves that Arteta's not afraid to use him in the league. And I think he wants to start using him more. It's just a case of managing his minutes and managing that fitness. But I, I really think, like you say, he's he's an option in terms of final third difference makers. There's there's Arsenal are crying out for someone who can do that right now. And I think Smith Rowe could be a solution. Yeah, uh, he can you know play in all those different positions that, that Trossard can play in as well. And I agree with you. I think he could have made a difference if he'd come on maybe a little bit earlier last night. And, and going forward, I think we'll see him... More often, it's just a case of when Havertz is back and Trossard is ahead of him in the pecking order and Jorginho arguably ahead of him in the pecking order and he's not going to get in ahead of Erdegaard. And where do those minutes come from for Smith Rowe to start to build himself up again? Because there's no Champions League games, there's no Carabao Cup games, there's only that FA Cup game against Liverpool, which 
it's possible that Arsenal could lose that. And then you start to look at where are those minutes going to come from for Smith Rowe to build his fitness up and Arteta clearly doesn't want to throw him in unless he's he's fully ready. So mm. it's difficult for Emil because I, I agree with you, there's a really good player in there and someone who could make a real difference for Arsenal in the title race. But I don't know if Arteta will, will risk throwing him in sort of cold, if you like. I mean, there is a risk-reward element to this, though, because the, you know, the risk is, okay... He might pick up an injury or he doesn't play well. Let's say that's the minor risk is he doesn't play that well. The major risk is that he picks up an injury. The reward, though, is that he contributes goals and assists and brings something a little bit different to the team. And I do wonder if that's something that Arteta is going to have to balance to say, okay, uh, there is a risk here with this guy. He hasn't played a lot in the last 18 months, but I have a team that is struggling to score goals. My striker isn't scoring enough goals. My right winger is not scoring enough goals at this moment in time. My left winger hasn't scored enough goals this season. You know, where where are those goals going to come from? And, you know, it might be a case that Havertz steps up. It might be a case that Trossard hits a run of form. It might be a case that Martin Odegaard, um, you know, starts finding the back of the net with a bit more frequency. But to have another option strikes me as... Um, very useful, particularly if from an attacking perspective, the club's hands are relatively tied when it comes to January because of the financial restrictions, because of the availability of players or lack of availability of players who, who would be, um, you know, either uh, or the clubs would not be willing to let them go. Or if they were, it would take an enormous fee and, and you're sort of paying money for for somebody in January that you could get, you know, for a, for a much better price in... in yeah, in, a loan deal for Haaland is quite difficult to get over the line, <laughs> I would say. Well, that's the one that was in the back of my mind, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that connection with Pep. But, you know, I, I think it's stark. You know, when you look at the bench and when you look at what we tried to do last night to change the game, Reese Nelson hasn't started a Premier League game in three years, over three years. And Eddie Nketiah, who is um, an effective player when he starts, his record off the bench is not brilliant. I know he got an assist um, for Havertz against Brighton, and I think there was one goal off the bench um, in recent times. But more often than not, he's not somebody who, who gets goal involvements from the bench. Whereas I think Smith Rowe has a little bit of a track record of that. So when you think about him and when you think about what we could do to try and have another option and try and uh, change the momentum of games or change uh, the way we attack, like I'm not saying he's our last great hope, but I think he is somebody that we have to consider very, very strongly, um, even if, as you say, there are some doubts over what he can produce at this point. Yeah, definitely. I've I've been looking at the Arsenal bench over recent matches and obviously the starting eleven looks quite strong. And, you know, most of the squad, we all agree this, the squad is in a much stronger place than it was last season or in seasons gone by under Mikel Arteta. But I think when you look to that bench, and you, you, I, I, I generally think this when I look at the team sheets that get handed out about an hour before kickoff in the press room, and I, and I think if things are going wrong here, there's not an awful lot that you can rely upon to change it from an Arsenal perspective. And when I say rely upon, I, I mean, obviously, Reese Nelson has done that against Bournemouth to a spectacular degree. And Eddie Nketiah came on at halftime against Fulham in the first, second game of the season, third game of the season, sorry, and, and, and changed it. And, you know, he's, he's made impact off the bench, like you say before. But it's, in terms of consistent performance off the bench, 
Trossard is probably Arsenal's only real one and, and he was starting the game. Um, Smithrow hasn't been given that chance and like you say, I remember that season where it was him and Martinelli almost sort of trading blows for who would start on the left wing and, and mm. Martinelli would start and score and Smithrow would come on and score and it was sort of who's going to play in that position. That was the that was the ongoing debate at the time and I'd love for Smithrow to have a similar role now. I'm not sure he'd love that in terms of being the, the super sub but yeah, there's, there's certainly an impact player there on the bench I just think he needs to get up to speed a little bit more and like I said before I'm not sure where that's coming from uh, in terms of options but there's, there's such a fantastic player there and he was just starting to show it before that injury it was just what's made that so frustrating just before that West Ham game where he probably would have started in the Carabao Cup probably would have been back-to-back starts after the Sheffield United game where I thought he played well against Sheffield United and then he picked up that injury and now he needs to go again and he's done that pretty well this season he's done that at times and Arteta was very positive about his rehab but I just wonder um, whether Arteta feels he can rely on him in terms of fitness perspective, in terms of being at that level right now. It's it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the manager's job to give him the minutes to get him match fit. You know, he did talk yeah. about how, um, you know, how he's seen him do rehab differently and 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 all that. So, uh, look, hopefully, he can force his way into uh, into contention, and and maybe the best way for Smith Rowe to get. Uh, match fit and match minutes is for the other players to step up and score goals because if you're 3-0 up at home maybe that's a chance to give Smith Rowe 30 minutes quite easily rather than you know sticking him on with, with 10 or 11 minutes left or whatever it was last night um, let's talk about the goals that Arsenal conceded it is a bit weird isn't it that twice in one season Arsenal have been at the centre of one of these, if you want to call it that. Did the ball go out of play or not against Newcastle? Well, according to Joe Willock, it did. Um, <laughs> so we're going to assume that, you know, he wasn't just taking the piss or winding people up when he said the ball was out of play. This one, it was one of those when I looked at it and they showed the replays, I was like, hmm, I think that looks out, to be honest. And there were a couple of angles, but because of the lack of a definitive angle, they can't conclusively rule that out. So I don't want to get into a big thing about VAR or technology or anything else, but it is just a bit strange and random that this has happened twice to Arsenal um, in one season. I mean, when can you last remember that happening? The only one I can think of is Japan in the World Cup. That yeah. game against, was it, was it Spain, where there's the whole perspective, the ball looks out, but it's not out and and all that stuff. That's the only time I can, I can think of another similar incident in sort of all, all my years of watching football I can't think of anything and Arsenal have had two in the space of a season and yeah I think it brings into to question um, you know if for all this technology that, that we've that we've got in football if if you know Jared Bowen's voluptuous thighs can't are blocking a view then you've got an issue you, you can't you know you can't be being blindsided by that and it, it baffles me that there's no technology to tell you like there is over the goal line whether the ball is in or out. I can't believe that's that's not been introduced yet. Just like I can't believe semi-automated offsides haven't been introduced yet. And Arteta said something similar in his post-match press conference. And I thought he handled this controversy much better in the sense that he was he was quite calm about it and said, look, it's, it's gone. I'd love for there to be better technology, but we can't do anything about it. But that's a real issue in, in the game. And obviously, you know, covering Arsenal week in, week out and, you know, following Arsenal week in, week out, we, we, we notice it a lot more because it's affected Arsenal twice this season. But 
it's crazy to me that that's not a thing in the game or some sort of, I think Mark Clattenberg was suggesting a chip in the ball at half time or something, you know, if they can manage Hawkeye in tennis where they can tell whether the ball's in or out, there's no reason you can't have that mm. in football, in my opinion. And I think that's something they need to, to get on pretty quickly because it is, it's shaping games and it's, it's shaping title races and Arsenal, I think, have a right to be quite aggrieved by that because it looked out to me, but I totally sympathise with the referees as to why they couldn't give that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a less controversial, less contentious incident, I think, than the Newcastle one because you know there were maybe two or three or maybe four yeah. different offences or different checks in that passage of play uh, with the goal at Newcastle, whereas this was like 13 minutes into the game, West Ham put a ball in, I think Gabriel clears that, but Zinchenko gets in the way. Yeah. Um, and that's accidental, bad defending. I don't know where the line is on that, but, um, you know, it's just, it's one of those things. I think Arsenal will look at that goal and say, could we have defended better? Should Ben White have got pulled out of position by uh, Lucas Pacata, uh, leaving space for the pass for the guy who crossed the ball? When you look back at the replays, Trossard is ball watching, he's with Suchek, he's ball watching, and although he reacts, he reacts too late to, to make the challenge. So I think there are, you know, questions and maybe suggestions about what could and should be done from a technological point of view. But, you know, when Arsenal look at the tape of this, they will see that this is a goal that they could have prevented through better defending. Definitely. It's it's a really soft goal to concede. And, you know, I, I don't know if Zinchenko's guilty of, um, of of conceding that, but his, his fingerprint is certainly at the crime scene. And <laughs> Gabriel doesn't fully cover himself in glory, I guess, in the way he, he hooks it away. I don't know what else he could have done that differently, though. And, and you're right, Ben White makes a mistake. Trossard is slow. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of things that Arsenal could do better in the build-up to that goal. And so far this season, the defence has been able to, to bail Arsenal out in the sense that when the attack hasn't been having those kind of games, has been, sorry, having those kind of games where they're, they're not looking like scoring, Arsenal's defence has been so imperious that they've been able to to come away with either a point or a or even a, a, a last-minute win, whereas eventually I think that's going to catch up with you. And I think it did last night. And, you know, when you have this many games in this quick succession, those kind of sort of tired errors and, and lapses in concentration, they do tend to happen. And it's not. It's the kind of goal I think you see a lot around Boxing Day, where you know people switch off a little because you know their 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 minds are a bit fatigued, and obviously that's excuses. And you know professional footballers should be able to to stop that goal from happening. But it is the kind of goal that you can concede if you're not, I guess, fully mentally fresh. Well, you know, Arsenal did have five days off going into this true, game, and true, true, true. Uh, I suppose that that now uh, has put the shits up me for a Sunday because we're playing <laughs> very, very quickly again, and hopefully that is that is something that they can get over. The second West Ham goal scored by, you know, that thing about like oh, former player, he's going to come back and haunt us, all that kind of stuff, like. I doubt anyone was really thinking uh, Dinos Mavropanos was going to be that guy. On Premier Sports in Ireland last night, Gary Breen analysed the goal and he's um, talking about how Zinchenko's job as the blocker is to stop Mavropanos making that run across goal, which gives him the the speed and the leverage to jump above Gabriel. Um you know, Gabriel is probably at a standing start and or a standing jump rather, and you know, Mavropanos gets there just before him, and it's one of those where, you know, it flicks uh, off his head, and it could have gone, uh, you know, an inch over the bar, it just clattered in off the underside of the bar. 
How do you view that one in terms of def- defensive responsibilities? Um, if your job is to block players from running and that player then has the freedom of the penalty box to run, it, you haven't really done your job well. No. Um, I think what we'd all say about Mavropanos, the one thing we can remember from him being at Arsenal, though, is he's he's a physically... He's a, he's a monster. He's, he's very good at those kind of tussles. And maybe the decision to put Zinchenko as the blocker probably wasn't the right one because I don't think Zinchenko is, you know, for all his technical qualities, he's not the most physically imposing player in the world. And I think if Mavropanos runs at him, he probably is going to be able to get past him. And yes, the blocker's supposed to stop him and all that kind of stuff. But it's kind of a mismatch in terms of, of duels in the box. Maybe Arsenal will, will look at that again and think maybe we can put someone else a bit more physical on that kind of role. But like you say, it's it's it was one of those nights where everything West Ham did created a goal or a really good chance. And it was very unlucky. Like you say, it could have gone anywhere off the about I think it hit the post as well as the bar before going in. And it's one of those things where it was it was bound to happen because Maverick Palace was coming back and, and when he didn't celebrate it was almost like, oh yeah, you you were an Arsenal player. It's almost one of those sort of weird tiny reminders. And it wasn't it wasn't a nice goal to concede, but it it reminded me a lot of um the Bournemouth game last season where obviously Bournemouth scored early and then they scored a corner in the second half and, and both goals were, were very avoidable. That day Arsenal were able to to come back and it was, you know, one of the, the best games any of us can remember. But this day they, they weren't as able to. And again, those are the kind of errors that can happen across the course of a football match. And if you take your chances at the other end, we don't really discuss yeah. them. They're, they're, called, they're sort of footnotes in the game, whereas now they're, they're points of major contention. Yes. And, you know, after the the second goal. It was at their 55th minute, so there was still quite a long time in the game, plenty of time to at least get something from it, you know, to get another and maybe another, and who knows, maybe another, but that wasn't the case, and we've talked about the the lack of efficiency or, or, or the chances that were missed. You know, I think about the Gabriel Jesus header uh, that he put over at the back post. There was one where he just headed down, and, you know, I'm not quite as critical of, of that one as I would be uh, from the one, it was a Ben White pass, Martin Odegaard um, with some brilliant work to to set Ben White free and over. And even that is the 66th minute. So it gives you time to, you know, to, to put some pressure on. And you concede one, and we know this fine well, you know, having been 2-0 up and comfortable, as soon as you concede one, it's, you know, it does... Um, it does change the mindset, doesn't it? It does change the the anxiety levels uh, quite a bit. How much difference it would have made to the way West Ham played, I'm not 100% sure because they were sitting very deep, defending um, well, I think. You know, they made a lot of blocks, a lot of clearances, uh, but that goal, that goal just didn't come. And, um, you know, the reaction of Arteta, I think, to the, the Gabriel Jesus miss, um, from the Ben White cross was was really quite telling because that's the kind of time you need to score in a game like this. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And uh, like you say, momentum is a huge thing in football. If Arsenal get one, they I think they probably do go on and get another because you get that sort of impetus from the crowd and everyone starts to believe and and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, the the thing is, and um, so that was straight after the subs came on. And I do think initially the subs added an injection of, of urgency, but I think that dissipated very quickly. That that sort of evolved away from the game quite quickly and it, it quickly sort of reset into the pattern of Arsenal slowly attacking and, and West Ham diligently defending and, and sort of having everything at arm's length. And they, they quite liked it that way. And 
that intensity and that urgency that Arsenal probably needed in the final third, I do think was was lacking and they didn't take their chances. And yeah, it was a bit of a lull. I can't think of any sort of major chance after that Jesus one until maybe that Trossard one quite late that you mentioned earlier in the podcast where I think, oh, wow, that was that was a really good opportunity that Arsenal should have taken. And mm. that was, I guess, a bit of a concern in terms of maybe belief. And inside the Emirates, it was probably one of the first times where I noticed people getting on players' backs and one of the first times where it didn't quite seem to have that belief. After the first goal went in, it was the classic sort of Arsenal fans going, come on, get behind the team, mm. all that kind of stuff. But when the second goal came in, it was it was really quiet. And I just don't think there was that belief or um, that sort of inevitability to, to the previous Arsenal comebacks that there have been. And I don't really know what that says in terms of what you can um, garner from how Arsenal fans feel about their team right now in terms of in front of goal. But I guess it suggests that they think... They're, they're not doing enough in the final third. And yeah. if Arsenal can see two, then they're in big trouble. I think you're right. You know, the the belief comes from, let's say you've got three players in your front three who are scoring regularly. You know, that that then would give you that belief that the, the team could go on and make a difference. I mean, Martin Odegaard, it's difficult to talk about bright spots on a, a day when Arsenal have lost and not scored. But I do think Martin Odegaard, was the pick of the bunch last night from an Arsenal perspective. Six key passes. Um, he had a, a very good attempt late on, I think, where uh, Ariola made a, a good save. Maybe it would have been too little too late anyway. But if there was anybody in that front five for Arsenal who could come out of this game and say, yeah, I can hold my head up relatively high, I think he was the guy. Yeah, I think he was outstanding. I think from the from the very start of the game, it was quite clear that he was someone who was he was up for it. He was having it that night, and you know he won the ball really high up off a West Ham defender. I can't remember who. There was that lovely back heel that he did to um, to set up Bukayo Saka, where he had a curler that Ariola saved, and that seemed to sort of set an epidemic of, of back heels throughout the Arsenal team, and everyone was trying it. Um, he was really good in the pass to Saka for the for the goal that he should have scored where he hits the post, the near post, that's Erdegaard's ball through for the Jesus chance. That's Erdegaard into White. That, you know, everything that Arsenal created on the night, more or less, came through the the boot to Martin Erdegaard. I think he was outstanding. I think his return to form has been a real fillet for Arsenal because without him being up top form, Arsenal at times did look a little bit stunted creatively. And you think back to that Newcastle game, yeah, yes, you know, there was all that controversy around the VAR stuff, but Arsenal didn't create an awful lot of chances on the day and... Erdogan wasn't there that day and I don't think there's many players in this Arsenal team who are as creative as him and when he's when he's on song like he was last night I think he was outstanding that that makes a huge difference for Arsenal and they create enough chances to win 99% of football matches it feels like a, a buzzword in this in this podcast or nine times out of ten but nine times out of ten if, yeah. if Martin Erdogan creates that many chances Arsenal win the game so if he can keep doing that then, then Arsenal should win a, a lot more football matches than they lose like last night there was a shout for a penalty on Bakayo Saka in about the 81st, 82nd minute, which, you know, I think it in itself is probably a bit soft, but it's the kind of penalty you often see given. But I do wonder if when they looked at it uh, in the VAR room, the foul or the tug on Ogbonna by Gabriel Jesus played a part in the decision-making there where he does just pull his shorts as he's about to make that challenge. So there might be some mitigation for the contact that is there, even if that contact is is relatively minimal. 
Yeah, in the in the, in the press box, it was sort of uh, cliche bingo going around where everyone was saying, oh, I've seen them given, uh, you know, it might be given. I don't mm-hmm. think it'll be overturned. All those kind of things were, all those sort of greatest hits were coming out um, because it was that kind of a decision where I think if on-field it had been given, probably VAR wouldn't have overturned it. But I do think Saka was looking for it. And it's interesting to compare that to, I don't know if you saw the Madueke one for Chelsea uh, the night before where he similarly sort of throws his leg into a Palace defender and, and wins a penalty. And that's a bit more of an obvious one in the sense that the yeah. defender is is more obviously in his way. But I think Saka's looking for that and I don't think the referee buys it. And listen, if that penalty had gone against Arsenal, I think we'd all be quite disappointed. So it's it's one of them where I think this is your barometer, isn't it, Andrew? If it yeah. was at the other end, how would we feel? I think we'd all be quite disappointed. So I don't think we can be too aggrieved by that. No, the penalty though at our end was absolutely a penalty. Yes. And, you know, it was, you know, Declan Rice has played against West Ham twice now this season, lost both of those games. He may want to just send a small bunch of flowers to David Raya for, for saving his blushes there because the West Ham fans cheered the goal. I don't think they cheered anything as loudly as Declan Rice conceding the penalty. <laughs> uh, they were singing some songs about him, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, and that's you know just part part and parcel of what goes on at football matches. But you know that really would have been some salt in the in the wound for Arsenal and for Declan Rice, who you know we haven't really mentioned. We've talked about him a lot this season, and he's often been the best player on the pitch. He's often been really influential. And although he had plenty of the ball and tried his hardest last night, it just didn't really happen for him. And and that moment at the end really could have, uh, could have been a kicker for him. Yeah. You could see it on his face. He was like, oh, for God's sake, <laughs> this is just <laughs> the, the perfect storm, like of all the things that have gone wrong tonight. And nine, I think Teclan Rice has made that tackle where he's got that sort of outstretched leg and he's so good at it. And, 99% of the time he seems to make that tackle but it was a tired challenge I think he looked a bit tired again he's another one who I thought looked quite tired on the night um, his passing wasn't at his high standards there was a few where he gave the ball away and he wasn't quite sort of bringing that mm. intensity and that zip that he does when he's in the sixth role and yeah I just think that I don't think it was a case of West Ham being the issue for Rice I think you know if, if that game was played next season and it wasn't in the middle of the festive period maybe he plays a lot better against West Ham but I don't think he felt like he had a point to prove. I think maybe he was a little bit hurt by um, the treatment he got from the West Ham fans because they were booing him very early on and he made a sort of, I think, a point of applauding the Arsenal fans after the game. And I think, you know, he's got a good relationship with West Ham fans and, you know, all that stuff is, I guess, pantomime antics that you get around football matches. But it was sort of a perfect storm for him, wasn't it, when that penalty was given? But Raya saved it and it's a shame it meant nothing, but it's, it's good to know that he can do that. Going forwards, it's good to know that Arsenal have a, a goalkeeper who can save penalties. And I think he's got a decent record at Brentford as well of, of saving penalties. So that's that's at least another positive. If you're looking for positives, uh, if you're really scraping the barrel of positives, that's one you can find from, from last night from an Arsenal perspective. Yeah, I, I think I remember looking this up and I'm not sure that his um, penalty, penalty statistics, I don't think they're that great. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, saved. We can just that bit out then. <laughs> saved, saved four, conceded thirty-two, um, ah. and that's going back a long way. Actually, that includes some Premier League too, but it does go back to National League. So anyway, look, it's well, fair he to saved say one out of his last one penalties, and that's yeah. that's the, the stat. <laughs> 
yeah, that's the one that he needs uh, going forward. So uh, exactly. let's hope let's hope he can take some confidence from that, even if it didn't mean a great deal in in the grand scheme of things. All right, look, we better leave it there. There's plenty for Mikel Arteta and for Arsenal to do on the training ground ahead of our trip to Fulham on Sunday. For now, we better leave it there. Kaya, thank you as always for your time. Happy New Year to you and yours, and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers, Andrew. Happy New Year. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Thank you very much indeed to Kaya. You can find him on Twitter. He is at KayaKainak97, at KayaKainak97. And he writes about Arsenal very well, too, for Football London. So in the next... 48, 72 hours, Mikel Arteta has got to figure out a way to get his forwards scoring goals because, well, whatever happens in January, whether somebody arrives or doesn't arrive, nobody's arriving before we play Fulham on Sunday. So that has got to be the focus. Shooting practice, finishing practice, tap-in practice, 30-yard screamer practice, all the practice that you can do to score goals. Let's hope they get some of that done and dusted on the training ground over the next couple of days. We will preview that game for you over on Patreon tomorrow, so please do join us over there if you fancy that. It's patreon.com forward slash arseblog. For you guys who aren't on Patreon, this is the last podcast of the year. James and I will have an Arsecast Extra for you next year. It will be 2024 next time we speak, and we'll be talking uh, about the Fulham game and hopefully a good win for Arsenal um, on Monday, which is, of course, 2024. So it just remains for me in the final few hours or a few days or a couple of days, whatever it is, of, of 2023 to take a moment to thank you all for being with us throughout another calendar year and to wish you and yours, wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening, a very happy, healthy, successful, and peaceful 2024. For now, thank you again, as always, for being with us. And thank you for listening, subscribing, downloading, sharing, and all the other things you do with this podcast, some of which I don't care to know about. Happy New Year, folks, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.